Uh, well, welcome today. Glad to have you here. If you're new, if you're just uh, joining us, uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we are in a series in the Gospel of John, and today we come to a passage that is all about competition between ministries, uh, competition between groups of people that are trying to follow God and trying to do the best that they possibly can, and it's causing them some, some conflict, some, some tension between them. And, uh, and, and that then leads to the second part of the passage to a broader question. And that question is this. Is there only one way to know God or do all religions lead to God? So even though this passage is set thousands of years ago and in a totally different culture from the one we're in, the kind of questions that it addresses and the kind of issues that it talks about are very relevant for us today because they're human questions. So let's take a look at how this story begins. It starts in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. Here's what the Apostle John writes. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Selim, because water was plentiful there, for, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So let's stop there. Here, here's the setting of this story. There are three groups that are baptizing. There's John and his disciples. They're out in the Judean countryside somewhere. They're baptizing. Then there's John the Baptist and his disciples. They've got the good spot. They're at a place called Anan near Salim, which is a place where apparently there's a lot of water, easy access. It's a good place to be baptizing. And then there's a third group of people that are doing the equivalent of baptizing. John refers to it as purification. In other words, they are fulfilling the, 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 the law of Moses that required ceremonial washing and cleansing. And there's another sort of version of baptism. So three sort of groups, all following God, all involved in baptism, all doing it differently. Now, if you've been around the church any amount of time, you know this is a recipe for conflict and tension. And in fact, that's what begins to happen. One of these people, a devout Jewish person who is practicing the Jewish law of purification, came to where John and his disciples were baptizing. Now, maybe he came as a, at the invitation of a friend. Maybe he came because he was curious. Maybe he came because he was looking to have an argument. But whatever the reason, he ends up in this discussion, this, this argument over the, the way to do baptism. What is the right way before God? And out of that discussion, no doubt, the conversation came up about Jesus and his disciples. And afterwards, after it was done, some of John's disciples came to John and they say to John, you know, you know that guy, Jesus? You know, the one you, you bore witness to said, that's the guy. You know that there's a ton of our people that are going over to him. Now, that's, that's, that's got to be tough for someone like John. I mean, the, the, the question's, that they are debating are doctrinal questions. What's the best way to baptize? What's the right way to, to, to wash in water, to be right before God? But bubbling underneath it all, bubbling underneath it all is actually this competition. 
Who is going where? How many people are in our ministry? How many people are going to their ministry? How many people are leaving this ministry? And, and, and these people, they're leaving John's ministry and going to Jesus' ministry. It's causing this tension. It's still an issue in the, in the Christian world today, isn't it? I mean, sometimes churches still clash over questions of doctrine. Sometimes they differ over style. Sometimes the, the conflict between them is public and is awkward. More often it's kind of quiet and, and very civil, but it comes with little jabs and, and, and comments and, and secretly comparing the, the size of one church or one ministry against the size of another church or, or another ministry. And sometimes, sometimes the differences between churches around doctrine are legitimate. Sometimes there's legitimate differences between churches and ministries when it comes to style. But often, often if you dig down to, the, to the, the, what's underneath it, what's underneath it is a bubbling sense of importance, of, of competition, of pride, and of ego. And, and when people switch and when they're moving, it can lead to jealousy and sometimes to conflict. So what's going on in Jesus' day. That those who are following Jesus is growing rapidly and in part at the expense of the ministry of John. And you can imagine, I mean, you could imagine this would be hard for John the Baptist. I mean, think about it from his point of view. He, here's a man who's been faithful to God, who is no doubt, you know, counseled and cared for and, and looked after people sometimes when it was highly inconvenient. Here's a guy who would have preached sermons out in the desert, in the wilderness. Even when crowds weren't coming, he was faithful to preach the word of God well. He's a guy who would have taught Sunday school, you know, without, without fail and, and poured into youth and, and been most faithful in his community group. And now, and now when his ministry begins to take off, now when finally people are responding to the message that God has given him, now, Jesus appears on the scene and people start to leave and go to see Jesus. And you would think that something like that would cause someone like John to be discouraged or depressed or angry and jealous because it's not easy to see someone else's influence grow at the expense of your own, is it? It's harder still to rejoice when that happens. And yet that's what John does. I mean, we're going to see it next. Now John is going to give us a master class on how it is that we ought to think about the relationship of different ministries when it comes to, to this kind of a situation. Here's, here's how John responds. Look at what he says. First of all, in verse 27, he says this. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. See, John says, everything that I have. Every gift that I have, every skill and ability that I have is only because it is a gift that God has given to me. Which means that the gifts and the skills and the abilities that I don't have is because God in his wisdom, in fact, God in his grace chose not to give them to me. This is what the pastor and author Peter Scazzaro calls the gift of limits. You know, we live in this culture that says you could be anything you want. You, you could do anything that you set your mind to. You just put your mind to it and away you go. 
And it sounds so good. I mean, it's, it's inspirational. It's just simply not true. I mean, in my little church growing up, they let me lead worship once, but never again. Turns out you can't be anything that you want. Now, God has given you all sorts of gifts and potential, but he's also, in his grace, granted you limits. And, and when you think about it, th those limits, those limits are a grace. They, they're, they're like a, a fence in a backyard that allow kids the freedom to go and to do all sorts of things, but to know that there is a limit. The, the, the limits that God has given us, they allow us, when we accept them, when we acknowledge them, they allow us to be grounded so that we can be all that God has called us to be, but not do more than he's called us to. Not, not, not end up harming ourselves or others or the ministry of the church. Because you see, if you don't acknowledge that God has give, given you limits, and if you don't see them as a gift, then you will try to be all kinds of things that God hasn't designed you to be. And you'll get frustrated and angry and burnt out, and, and, and you get hurt, and others get hurt in the process. And here we're not just talking about ministries, although this is the context here. But the same applies when it comes to careers, when it comes to businesses, to siblings, to children. God has gifted you in all kinds of ways, but he's given you these limitations, and you should embrace them. Because if you don't, it will drive you crazy. With jealousy, it, it, it'll, it'll slowly eat you inside when someone that has similar gifts sails past you. When, when you're on a career path and somebody else comes screaming by you up the ladder. When, when you have a business and someone with a similar business, their business just seems to, to flourish. When, when you're with your siblings and you're all working hard, but one sibling, no matter what they do, it just seems to, to, to grow. And I mean, they've got the golden touch. Everything works for them. Or when you think about your family and compare it to another family, and that family just seems to be so perfect. And they just seem to, to get it all right. And you just can't seem to get it the same way in your family. And you see... I mean, and, and of course, the same is when it comes to ministry. When, when this church, when we do best we can, but the church down the road just seems to have more and better and do it weller and all of that stuff. If you don't accept your limitations, that stuff will burn you up inside. Plus, it's not who you're designed to be. There's this old, this old rabbinic tale that's told. It's told about an old rabbi named Rabbi Suzia. And Rabbi Suzia was an old man, and he said this. When I arrive in the next world, they will not ask me, why weren't you Moses? They will ask me, why weren't you Zuza? Why weren't you who God made you to be? Why didn't you operate within the gifts and the limitations that he set for you? Because that leads to a full life. Have you ever considered the, the limits that God has placed on your life to be his gift to you? I mean, have you ever thought about those limitations and the places that God will put those limitations? One of the limitations that we all have is in our personality, right? Some of us are extroverted. Some of us are introverts. Some of us are easygoing and relaxed. And some are focused and driven. 
You know, some of us, uh, you know, are, are, are so, so conscious of the needs of uh, individuals around us. Some of us are just focused on the big picture. And the fact of the matter is whatever God has given you, those gifts also become in a, the, the back, the shadow side of those is, is a weakness. Uh, one of my coworkers used to always say, your greatest gift, the greatest gift that God has given you will also be your greatest weakness. The, the very gift that God has given you comes with a limitation in your life. You can't do it all. It's one of the limitations that God has given you. Another one has to do with your stage of life, right? God, these can also be God-given limitations in your life. Parenting, for instance, requires a great deal of energy and limits some of the other things that you can do. On the other hand, when your kids get older and begin to, to move out, that frees you up. And there's a new stage with all kinds of different opportunities. Uh, sometimes a health issue in your family puts a limitation on you. You just have to invest in caring for your family. Sometimes there's uh, financial uh, blessings in our life and sometimes financial strains. Those are different limitations. Sometimes there's a time for us to study and prepare and there's other times where we just give her and go full out. Those are limitations. Look, if you're volunteering around here, if you are serving here, thank you. We are desperate for, not desperate, we're so grateful for your help. And we love that God is using you in that way and we just want to encourage you to continue to, to volunteer. Accept that if you're feeling overwhelmed. If you're feeling burnt out, then we never want you to feel like, oh my, you just, I can't afford to not volunteer here because it'll all fall apart or it'll just have, I just have to keep doing it even though it's killing me on the inside. That, that's not good for you. That's not good for anyone. We understand that there are limitations that God puts in certain seasons in our life. And that's why, why we're this body. Like, that's what God calls the church, this body. That, that if one part hurts, we all hurt. But, but we all come around and adjust and help. And so if you, if you find yourself volunteering and you're like, I can't do this. Anymore. I, I'm just, it's like, I'm just feeling weary and tired. You should come and talk to us. Talk to myself or whoever on staff because we want to make sure that you're cared for and know that God will care for the needs that we have in his way and his time. It also means that all of us need to do whatever part God has called us to because then it's not too much on anyone. It's another area of limitations in our life. Other areas of limitations is your life situation. Sometimes age makes it harder to, you know, just physically do things. Sometimes youth means that you just don't have the experience that you need to open certain doors yet. Apostle Paul says that, that marriage is a certain limitation. You, you can't do all the ministry that you want because you need to be at home loving and caring for your spouse. Singleness is another kind of a limitation that, that comes in, into our life. And of course, every child that we have it requires more time and more energy and limits what it is that we can do. And that's okay. Those are gifts from God. And of course, then of course, there's just the way that God has made you emotionally and physically and intellectually. There's some people who can work 80 hours a week and they wake up on Monday, they're ready to go again. But most of us, that's not the case. And uh, some of us, uh, some people thrive in the midst of tons of people and in intense situations. And others of us thrive when it's quiet and we have time to think. 
Look, here's the point. A key indicator, a key indicator of your spiritual maturity is to live joyfully within your God-given limits. Too often we resent our limits. Too, too often we resent the limits that other people have. And we expect too much of ourselves and that can leave us frustrated and angry and sometimes jealous and depressed. See, John the Baptist, he's figured this stuff out. He gets it. He knows his limitations and it gives him freedom. Right? So, so one, of his, one of his disciples come to him and says, everyone is leaving you to go to Jesus. He doesn't respond with sadness or with anger or with jealousy. Rather, he states it. He, he acknowledges the work of God in his life. He says this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Everything that, that he has, all that he has accomplished is a gift from God and the rest are limitations from God. And he's good with both. If we don't want to be consumed with jealousy, with, with anger, with, with competition, one of the first steps is this. Embrace the God-given limitations that he has put in your life. It's so counterintuitive. It's so opposite to the narrative that is so common in our culture. And yet it's the way to freedom. Yet it's the, it's the way to experience all of life that God has designed for us. And it's the beauty of believing and trusting in the sovereignty of God. It's the first thing that John the Baptist says. But here's the next thing that he says. In verse 28 and 29, he says this. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John says, secondly, he says this, I haven't forgotten who I am or what my mission is. I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. I know what my role is. And you know, that this is so important. I mean, imagine, you know, the, I mean, think about, first of all, the, the role of a best man. The, the role of a best man is to support the groom. The role of a best man is to make sure that the wedding goes off without a hitch. The role of the best man is to celebrate the good fortune and the blessing that the groom has in getting married. That's the purpose of the best man. But imagine if you went to a wedding and before the ceremony, the best man was walking around and acting like it was all about him. In fact, imagine if you saw him flirting with the bride. I mean, it would be outrageous. Imagine if you happened to walk by and he was busy telling her about what an amazing guy he was and, and how anyone would be so lucky to be married to him. And, and you know, there's just always an opportunity until there isn't. I mean, you would be outraged. And then imagine if you came to the reception. And at the reception, when it was time for him to toast the, the groom and the bride, he got up and talked all about himself. What a great guy he was and how he had some troubles finding a girl that wanted to spend, you know, to, wanted to date him and, and, and what he was dealing with with his therapist. I mean, you would say, this is outrageous. And in fact, the groom at one point, when he figured it all out, he would take the best man out back and give him a good smackdown, wouldn't he? Right? Because, because the best man forgot who he was and what his role is. May we never forget 
who we are and what our role is. The mission of this church that Jesus himself has given to us, to every church, is to make disciples of all nations, to lead people to come and to know the hope and the life that is found in him. And then to teach them to obey everything he commanded us, to, to disciple people so that they know how to walk in the ways of Jesus. Our vision of a, as a church is that our city would know Jesus. That's it. That's what it's all about. That's who we are. And that's our role. In other words, this should never be about us. You know, th this is not about making our church the biggest and the best church around. Now, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with growth or with doing things with excellence. What it means is that's not the ultimate goal. That's not the motivation that we would be so great, that we would be the, the most important, that we would be the best church around, the best organization in the town. Because if that's the case, then we're like the best man who thinks that the wedding is all about us. So, that has a number of implications for us. It means that we need to always keep the main thing, the main thing. Look, every church has conversations about, about, and conversations and differences about things like baptism, about the role of women in ministry, about the, the end times, about creation, whether it was seven literal days or, or over eons. And, and those conversations are fine. Sometimes they're necessary. But those, those are never to be the main thing. Those are not to be what consumes us. Those should not be central in what we're all about. Nor should we use those things to look down upon others, other churches, other Christians, say, well, they are doing that, so they're not, they're not as good as us. No, no, no. Then, then again, we become like the best man who talks about himself at the reception instead of toasting the groom. And the bride. It's got to always be about Jesus. It also means that when people join our church, when they join your community group or the youth group or, or when they join the worship team or whatever it is and they journey with us for a season and we pour into them and we invest into them and them into us and then God calls them on to another ministry, to another place, it means that we're sad, but we're not upset. Because it's not about us. It's not about th this place. It's about what God is doing in them. It's about the, the groom. It's about Jesus. And so we bless them and we send them on their way. It means that we want to bless and encourage the other towns, or the other churches in our town. We're not in competition with them. We're not, you know, trying to beat them in anything. In fact, we're in service together for the sake of what God wants to do in this city. So when they succeed and grow, we celebrate. When they struggle and are hurting, we pray for them. Where we can, we want to help them. When they offer help to us, we gladly accept and receive their kindness and their grace to us. And where we can effectively partner together, let's partner together. Because it's not about us. It's about Jesus it's all about Jesus. It's about people coming to him and finding him and knowing him. It's about the groom and we're just the best man and we don't want to screw that up. Here's the second thing that John teaches us. Remember your mission. Remember who you are and what it is that you are called to do. That's why John, when he 
sees his ministry shrinking, he rejoices because he never forgot who he was or what his mission was. Here's the last thing that John says in verse 30. John says this, he must increase, but I must decrease. You know, the first church I ever served in, I served as an associate pastor. It was a huge church. Like I, I think 4,000 people on a weekend services, and all kinds of ministry. I mean, it was a big, big church. And I remember that when I joined the staff, just as I was joining the pastor who had been the lead pastor before me, he was just ending his time there. And he's a brilliant man. He was an amazing leader, gifted. I mean, under his leadership, that church had grown from about 800 people to several thousand people. And it was just this, this amazing place where all sorts of good things were happening. I remember him saying, he said, you know, the church is like, this church, he was talking about the church that, they, that we were serving at. He said, it's like a bucket of water. You, you put your, your fist into that bucket of water and you're in the middle of all of that, that things that are going on. But as soon as you take it out, it's like as if you were never there. And what he was saying is this, that his role there is as, as, as significant as it was, as involved as he was in so many things, it wasn't about him. It wasn't about his preaching or his leadership or the programs that he started or any of that. It was all about Jesus. It was all about this community of people that had been called to serve Jesus. And so he was saying that if and when, and for him, this was the if and when, it was time for him to go on. His leaving should hardly be noticed. And in fact, in fact, to his credit, that's exactly what happened. You know, on this very last day at that church, uh, they had a, a reception uh, for him in the gym. Uh, and I went, I was a staff. I didn't know him well, but I went to, to this reception. And you know what that reception for him on that last day, on a Sunday when all those people had been there? You know, there was key leaders there from the church that had walked with him for a long ways. But other than that, there was hardly anyone. There was not hundreds. There certainly wasn't thousands. It was such a tribute to that guy. I mean, he got it. He understood what John understood. It's not about him. It's all about Jesus. Everything was for Jesus and through Jesus and because of Jesus and to Jesus. And this is what John the Baptist is saying. It's really only about Jesus. That's the only name that matters. These in the Gospel of John, at least, these are the very last recorded words of John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. At the heart of John's ministry was this singular goal, to magnify Jesus. That has to be what we are all about. I mean, that, that, that has to be the heartbeat of what we do here. If that's what we measure as successful... Whether this place is filled to the rafters or if people are, are going to other places where ministry is happening, then, then we're good. I mean, if we're doing that, then, then we should become less and less and Jesus should be more and more because there's no one like him. There's no one greater than Jesus. There's, there's no one like him who is willing to lay down his life for us. There's no one else who has the words of life. There's no one else who has the way of life. It's all about Jesus. And this is where the apostle 
John, who writes this gospel, picks up on what John the Baptist said. And now in the, in the next verse, he takes that and he amplifies it. He ramps it up. Here's what he says now about Jesus. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. Now the apostle Paul says, look, there's none greater than Jesus. He is above everything else. Everyone else, every other ministry, every other, every other religion, every other value, every other belief is secondary to Jesus. Jesus is greater and above everything else. Now, that, that's the kind of statement that in our culture doesn't go over so well these days, right? In fact, it's one of the primary difficulties that people have with the Christian faith. This idea that Jesus is above all, that, that Jesus is the only way. They, they struggle with this idea that, that following Jesus is, a, is an exclusive claim. A claim that, that John makes here and that, that Jesus echoes elsewhere in the gospel. And there are two reasons why people struggle with this idea. First of all, it can sound incredibly arrogant if in fact it's not true. And secondly, if Jesus is the only way, if he really is above everything else, then that forces people to make a decision about Jesus. And that's always an awkward thing. Much better to simply say, well, you know what? I mean, Jesus is a good guy, brilliant, religious teacher, but, 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 and we hear this often these days, don't all religions lead to God? Aren't all roads eventually get to the same place when it comes to God? That sounds good. It seems like a simple solution to that problem. You say, great, Jesus, make all the claims you want, but you're all really just going to the same place. So I don't have to worry too much about them. The problem is that kind of a, a thing that they all go to the same place. It just doesn't, it just isn't true. It just doesn't logically make sense. I read about a, a debate that took place once, or not a debate, a, really a panel discussion at a university campus where there was a, a Christian pastor, a Jewish rabbi, and a Muslim imam come and talk about the differences and the similarities between their understanding of God. And the conversation was, was kind and gracious and civil, and they went back and forth. But at the end of this conversation, they came to the conclusion that they could not, that they would not agree fully on the nature of God, that it wasn't the same God that they were worshiping. And that bothered a number of the students who had come to hear that, that, that lecture, that, that panel discussion. And one of them got up and, and proceeded to explain to them to say that, well, in fact, there is really not that great a difference between Judaism and, and Islam and Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism, that really they were what is commonly said. They really were just Minor differences that all lead to the same God. So one of the panelists said to him, well, who is that God? I mean, what is he like? And the student replied, he said, well, that God is an all-loving spirit. The problem with that response is it's totally inconsistent. It's totally inconsistent because he just made a statement about God, a doctrinal statement about God an exclusive doctrinal statement about God that said, I know what God is like, and all of you guys, all of you, you know, religiously, everyone else, have to be wrong if I am right. Now, 
In his statement, he also failed to, to acknowledge that, that Buddhism, for example, doesn't even believe in a personal God. And Islam and Judaism and Christianity believe that God is loving, but that's not his only attribute. He's also just, and there's, uh, he holds people to accountability. And so what happened by getting up and, and saying, insisting that God was all love and that all roads led to God is that he, the student, was making a very exclusive doctrinal statement. One that disagrees with all of the major religions of the world in this day. And so he was doing the very thing that he disliked the most. You can't, you can't stand on that position when it comes to understanding the various faiths. Others would say, well, actually, actually, you know, the, the, all religions just sort of have a piece of God. They, they just have a little bit of spirituality uh, of the picture of the truth of who God is. And they use the, the fable of the blind men who... Come, uh, who, who are trying to figure out what an elephant is about, right? Four or five blind men, one, one touches the elephant's trunk and says, oh, I know this creature is like a long snake. The next guy says, no, 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 you're wrong. The, the, this creature is like a, a thick trunk of a tree because he's touching the, the leg of the elephant. And the next says, no, 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 this creature is like a giant, flat, smooth wall because he's touching the side of the elephant. And the, and the idea is that this, that none of them know the truth. But the problem with that little parable is that it's spoken, it's told from the perspective of someone who is not blind. It's told from the perspective of someone who can see the whole. And they're saying, look, you can't see the whole, but I can see what a whole elephant looks like. And to apply that to the religions of the world is to say the same, is to say, well, you can't see the full truth. You can't see the full truth and you can't see the full truth. And I know it because I can see the full truth. There's an incredible sense of arrogance in that kind of a statement as well. Islam holds that Jesus was not crucified. Christianity holds that he was. Judaism Refuses to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Christians believe that he was. Buddhists look forward to nirvana, which can only be reached with at least 547 reincarnations. Christians believe in one life, one death, and the eternity after that. Humanists don't acknowledge a creator. Christians do. Hindus perceive God to be plural and impersonal. Christians believe in one God who is deeply personal. You simply cannot logically and reasonably argue that all religions lead to the same place. If you use that logic anywhere else, they would laugh you out of the room. All religions don't lead to God. The Apostle John writes here, he says, all the other religions are from earth and speak in earthly ways. But he says that Jesus is different. He alone comes from heaven and he alone is above all. In essence, John says this, Jesus is the only way to God. He alone bears witness to the truth of God. But that doesn't make him very popular. In fact, John acknowledges that next. Here's what he says in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. There's a lot of people who, when it comes to this kind of a statement from Jesus, simply reject it out of hand. They're like, well, if that's the case, I, I don't accept it. But to those who accept his testimony, this is what he says in verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. 
Those who examine, who look at, who investigate and say, yes, I get it. They say, this is true. They certify it with how they live their life. And in some places of the world, like we talked about last week, or we remembered last week, they are literally persecuted for their faith. They, they literally shed their blood because they know the truth of who Jesus is. And John explains why Jesus is the only way. He goes on in verse 33 to say this. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. Oh, sorry, verse 34. For he who God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. You know, in the ancient world, maybe today too, but, but, but certainly in the ancient world, there was two kinds of ambassadors that would be sent from a king or a ruler to another country. One kind was the kind of ambassador who would represent the king by relaying his messages. The king would send a message. He would tell the, 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 the other nation. They would say something. He would relay the message back. That's one kind of ambassador. But there was another kind of ambassador that was given the title uh, plenipotentary. And this was an ambassador who was sent with the full and complete authority of the king or the ruler. When he got to the other nation, whatever he said was literally as if he was speaking the words of the king. He could negotiate treaties on behalf of the king without even consulting the king. What his decisions he made, the things that he said literally were what the king said. And this, this is what John says about Jesus. He says in the past, the Old Testament prophets were like the first kind of ambassadors. They were given a portion of the spirit, a portion of the message to deliver to the world about who God was. But he says now Jesus is this kind of ambassador who has the spirit of God without measure. Literally what he says, what he does, how he acts is what God says, what God does, how God acts. That's why he is the only way. That's why he is the one. He's the perfect, perfect representative of God, which, which leads then to this natural conclusion. Here's how he ends. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now listen, you, you don't have to believe in Jesus. You don't have to believe the claims that he that are made about him or by him about who he is. But here John points out this. You can't ignore it. You, you, you can't just write Jesus off as one more way to get to God. Or one more religious guy who's in competition with other religious guys to get as many people to follow him as you can, as he can. You know what? Because of the claims that John makes here and that later Jesus echoes, he requires a decision of you, one way or the other. But John points out, and again, not in a manipulative way, not in a scare tactic way, simply in the way of facts. That there is significant real consequences to the decision that you make. Your decision in regards to Jesus has these kinds of profound consequences. Now, should you make your decision about Jesus based simply on what John writes in these verses? Well, maybe. You have to remember, he was an eyewitness. He had nothing to gain and everything to lose if he's making this kind of stuff up. But, but maybe you're not ready for that yet. If that's, a, if that's you, it's okay. It's not a little thing to commit your life to follow Jesus. But if, if not, then the invitation of John, the invitation here is to come and see. 
to actually investigate, to genuinely look, to test, to think carefully about it, about what Jesus says and what he did. I mean, don't just write them off like, well, all religions lead to God. Don't just say, well, look, you know, Christians do stupid things, which they do, by the way. Or churches are in competition with one another, which sometimes, unfortunately, they are. Or, or, or Christian churches have done stupid things, which they have. Look, all of those things are true and they're wrong and they need to be dealt with. And, and we work to deal with those things. But that's the secondary issue, the primary issue. The, the issue that you cannot afford to not pay attention to is this. Who is Jesus? What is he all about? Because in the end, in the end, as John points out in this passage, it's all about Jesus. The invitation again today, the invitation again today is to give your life to him, to allow him to work in your life, to to lead your life, to live within the, the gifts that he has given you and the limitations that he's set in your life and to find the fullness of your life right there. I want to invite you to do that today. But if you've already done that, then I want to invite you to to go deeper, to press in more, to commit yourself more deeply to following him. Because in the end, in the end, there's no one else like Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Well, God, we come to you this day and we thank you again for Jesus. God, we thank you that in the end, it's all because of him and, and for him and through him and to him. And God, we acknowledge that as Christians, we, we do some stupid things. And, and God, as churches, sometimes we get so messed up and so confused. And for that, God, we repent. We ask for your forgiveness. God, forgive us when we forget about the mission and the vision that you've called us to. Forgive us when we get into competition. God, forgive us when we, when we think it's really about us. Oh, God. It's just so wrong. And, and God, we, we just confess. We pray you forgive us for those things. And God, we want to magnify Jesus. We, we want to lift his name up again. God, may it be that when people look at us, that they, that they see him. That they're so drawn to him. Because there's none else, no one else like him. Because it's through Jesus that, that we find life. So God, would you work in us? Would you use us? Would you shape and mold us? Father, so that Jesus gets all the glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming today and joining us. I want to send you with these words again from the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God bless you. Thank you for coming. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.